If you'd like to support this podcast, we're on Twitter and Patreon. That is at BibleBS on Twitter and Patreon. BibleBS. Welcome to Bible Stories. Today we're talking about the creation myths and the story of Eden, Eve, the apple, the snake, and all the other bullshit. So in a book of fantastic and objectively ridiculous stories, this is one of the more fantastic and objectively ridiculous stories. And the ignorance of whoever wrote the stories is quite obvious because of the assumptions made. And when you consider the fact that people in real time, people in my contemporaries, imagine that this might be a legitimate story, I am compelled to attempt to understand the reasoning behind this. And the only justification for this that I can imagine is what I'm going to be calling the fallacy of the idea of a miracle. So if you take the time to ask a superstitious person what they mean by a miracle, the general answer which I have received is that a miracle is a fantastic thing which is done by God, right? And then when you ask them, how do you know that God did the thing? They will say it is because of miracles. Miracles are the evidence for God. And so we run into a problem with, I think, the fundamental way in which the human mind attempts to solve problems. So it appears that the human is always attempting to be rational within the context which they have. And this has led to what we refer to as determinism, where humans have become convinced that things happen because of other things. And technically, I so far as we've been able to check the universe, determinism does stand up. Now, the problem is that over the course of any human's short life, they're only exposed to so much data. And so assumptions must be made off the data which they have. And because it is a most satisfying state to have a solution than to have a question for some individuals, those individuals insist on a solution. Now, the problem with this is that for these individuals, should a ready solution, complete solution not be available, they will simply champion the most palatable one. It appears solely because they want it to be true. And so we have a situation with the idea of an ultimate creator of everything, which in itself is based off determinism. And then if you accept that this ultimate creator of everything has ultimate power, then it is very easy to ascribe literally anything to them because nothing is impossible for this theoretical being. And so a situation arises where actually encountered phenomenon that individuals are not able to explain is ascribed to these ultimate solution gods, such as weather patterns, baby making, seasons, literally anything that people could not explain. If this individual also believes in an ultimate all-knowing creator God thing, then they just say that that God made it. And then 
what I feel is the more problematic other side of it is that it allows charlatans to introduce fantastic stories into the zeitgeist and justify them by saying that they happened because of a god. And if individuals already believe in the ultimate unbounded power of a god, suddenly any story is potentially acceptable and what becomes championed will be directly related to what those individuals who champion the ideas want to be true. And so from here we have the basis of all the ridiculous justifications for every attempted assertion of supremacy on the planet. And a lot of the justifications that people use today are in this story about the ridiculous garden and the rib clone and the talking snake. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so on the story goes with that general attempted air of gravity and importance. But to summarize, basically, apparently, according to the story, first God created light. Then apparently he split the waters because in the beginning there was just a void and the waters, you know. So apparently he split the waters and made the sky and the ocean. Now this is a happy, a happy coincidence that I found in the thing because technically, yes, there is some moisture in the atmosphere. So like I want to give them a point, but yeah, it's like that thing they say about broken clocks and being right twice a day. Then apparently he created the continents and then he made the flora and then apparently he created stars and the night. Now, now we know that like nighttime is a phenomenon that is a result of our planetary rotation and that like light that we see comes from stars and our closest star, which is our sun. So like, how could there have been light before stars? But then again, it's back to the thing of all things is possible with the bad man with all the power. Anyway, yeah, so he makes stars in the night. And then finally, uh, on the sixth day of his working, because as I mentioned earlier, there's a thing with the number seven in this book. A lot of cultures develop weird superstitions around numbers. Uh, most individuals, if you ask them, will say they have favorite colors and numbers. So, yeah, it's a human thing, having a favorite number. Anyway, so the favorite number is seven. So the last day of work was the sixth day. And apparently on the sixth day, that was when he made the fauna and mankind. And the book takes steps to talk about how special men are. Apparently, and I quote, and so God created man. In his own image, in the image of God. A bit redundant, but I guess you're trying to like insist on your badness. On with the quote. He created him, male and female. He created him. Now, at least in my version of the Bible, when they first mentioned the creation of humans, 
and I quote, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then that part of the book goes on to speak of him resting on the seventh day and like that's the story of creation. And then almost as an afterthought, there's another story where they go into more detail about why man and women are different and like why we suffer. And so let's look at the story of the apparent first humans, Adam and Eve. So the story goes that before there were plants on the earth and before apparently God sent rain to the earth, this was the time when God apparently took into his hand a bunch of soil and coughed on it and that manifests as the first man. So, like a lot of the stories in this book bother me, but like this one is the most irritating because literally the paragraphs after the next paragraphs contradict each other. Because the first part of the stupid story, they talk about how that man was made after the plants. I think the plants were on day two or something, and man's like day five with the animals. And then, literally, in the next paragraph, it contradicts itself. And I know it's like a stupid myth, and I shouldn't, like, take it too seriously. And the idiot superstitious individual who's, like, trying to aggrandize it, who say, oh, it's a metaphor, and they go to... But, like, no. Whoever wrote this thing was an actual idiot, because you can, you can, what's it called, proofread the thing, you know? Anyway, enough of my rant about that. But... According to the book, yeah, the bad man makes the human being from the soil. I guess because he needed someone to water his plants. That's what's insinuated, but they're not quite clear. Anyway, the point is he makes a man. And then, apparently this all-knowing, all-powerful being realizes, oh, he made a mistake. And so he needs to give man a helper. Now, here the misogyny of the writer starts to come out. Because apparently, what God first tried to do um, on attempting to find a helper for man was to make him animals. So apparently God makes a bunch of animals, but none of them could help man. And then as a last resort, because the animals weren't good, he's like, ah, we're going to take this rib out of this guy and make him a clone. And then, yeah. And apparently that is how women are manifesting to this world. And... I don't think that anybody can argue that this has not contributed to superstitious people's misogynistic view of the world wherein they imagined that the male form had the whole planet created for them and everything is as per their dominion. It goes on to say some ridiculous stuff like because man named all the animals, he has dominion over them. Just... Primitive, primitive ideas in this story. And then just another point on this idea that a lady might have, that the female form might have been formed secondary to the male form, right? So, men have nipples. That's all I have to say about that. Men have nipples. Now, nipples are a vestigial organ. Uh, if certain genes are stimulated and the child manifests as a lady, we know that that will manifest into an organ that can produce uh, nourishment for a child. But men have that vestigial organ. So in what way can 
the original article of two things have a vestigial organ of what is supposed to have been secondary to it. Yeah, women definitely do not come from man. My favorite quote on it, I think is by the author, I forget his name, but he wrote the books about uh, Sheki Tovax. And he put it so eloquently. He says, women are the race, right? The male form was always supplementary. You were supposed to go out and do the fighting and the hunting. But those that perpetuate the species are the ladies. And now because of um, advances in uh, fertility, should I say science, and uh, CRISPR, very soon we'll be at a point when the male input in making a child would be not absolutely necessary in that right now you can clone a human just not legally where you'll take the nucleus of the cell of the individual you're trying to clone and then you'll use that uh, to create an embryo with the lady and you can grow that child we've done it with sheep and other animals and I'm, and they have done it with human embryos they just didn't like let them grow to maturity they just wanted to see that it worked and they actually started cell division so right now the technology exists and as soon as all the ridiculous hang-ups about the purity of man are gone and when the technology is refined to a point that we can as uh guarantee uh desirable traits and disease resistance and increased intelligence and whatever might be possible from the genetic uh, modification it will now become if not only fashionable but maybe even more moral for an individual to craft for themselves the best baby which they can but yeah that is a conversation for later but my point is at this time the male input will not be as important an individual can take their own cell have it modified and use that to uh, develop an embryo. And so I imagine a, a future where the man is a, a novelty because as the breeding will be selective, individuals will probably, because it is better if the child can have a child <laughs> and if the, the, the hang-ups which made people um, favor men are gone, it would always make more rational sense to make the most intelligent, beautiful girl that you can as a child. And so, yeah, I imagine a situation where there might be less men. But I doubt that might happen in my lifetime. If only I was so lucky. Or maybe if we'll even be in that romanticized state that people have been recently calling for where we transcend the notion of gender and the child will just be called a human child and they will have absolute capacity because we would have found a form that works best and all children will be born that way and we just call them humans anyway but i digress the point is that at this point in the story um the all-powerful all-knowing super being has created man and then the story attempts to explain how you can be in a world 
which is created by an all-powerful, all-knowing, benevolent being, wherein there is always suffering. And again, because of determinism, the thing to do is to seek out the cause of the suffering. And so a scapegoat is found. But before we get into the story, I think it's important that we first go over two central themes which are the linchpins of how the story attempts to justify itself. And those are the notions of shame and the notion of sin. And so first the story attempts to establish that apparently in the original form, mankind was what they imagined to be a state of innocence. And how they describe this state of innocence is by saying that when mankind was naked, they felt no shame. Now, when I think about that reaction that I assign to the word shame, and when I think about what would be the reason for this thing, it comes back to what I feel is the reason for most reactions in that the machine is trying to self-preserve. And so situations which are not going to be in your long-term benefit, it tries to leave a warning about it so that you do not indulge in that behavior or activity because it will undermine your ability to self-preserve. And in that way, if it's used well, shame is then supposed to allow you to not repeat uh, social faux pas or bad behavior that uh, you had maybe had not considered prior. But now because you have the shameful memory of engaging in that bad behavior, or it may not necessarily be bad, but it might not be beneficial. But the thing with the story, because it is trying to establish the notion of ultimate good versus ultimate bad, because in this way, um, the cult can be the path to this ultimate goodness by claiming association with the creator, who is the source of all goodness, and claiming to be uh, the bastion fighting for your souls against the inverse of this, which this particular cult describes as what they call sinful actions. And this story is supposed to explain how come humans engage in sin. Now, sin is the novel and illogical idea that creatures who are made by an all-knowing, all-powerful, benevolent God who, according to the story, or is it just the quotes of his cult leaders, knows you from the tips of your hair to the soles of your feet. That is to say, he knows all your decisions. They say he knows how, um, everything about you. He knows how you will die. So, if he knows exactly what you are going to do, then everything you do is part of his plan. And they argue this. They say that everything you do is part of his plan. But then you would ask, then how can sin be a thing? Because it's supposed to be part of his plan. And so what this story does to deal with that is also introduce this novel idea of free will where apparently, yes, he knows everything you're going to do, but you choose. But if you think about that for more than half a second, 
what you're talking about is just the illusion of freedom. And from what we can determine from the universe, because of determinism, it does seem that even without a magical God, because stuff happens because stuff happens, there is no such thing as free will. Because I am having this conversation because of everything that happened to me prior to this moment. I was always going to say these words. I claim the words as mine own because we need to do that uh, to organize stuff. But it's happening spontaneously. I'm just bearing witness to myself do things. But by assigning the notion of free will to individuals, this helps to aggrandize the notion of man as special amongst the universe and further justify the existence of the cult as being the source of this special uniqueness that people hold so dear. Because by insinuating that men have control over their destiny, the reality of their inevitable death which frightens most children, they find it to be more, much more easy to handle. Anyway, um, back to the source material. So the story goes that the garden was this great paradise and it had all the possible fruits and God said that man could eat from all of the fruits other than the special fruit in the center of the garden which apparently was the fruit of knowledge because apparently God wanted to maintain mankind's innocence or if you consider that he knows everything maybe it was just part of the game whatever but the point is there was a special fruit that apparently bestowed upon uh, mankind uh, higher intelligence functions and so god lied to him and said that if he ate the fruit he would die <laughs> so apparently yeah adam was a good little slave thing and he never ate the fruit until that unfortunate day when god had wanted to make him a helper and made for him Eve, and once Eve was in the garden, suddenly she was susceptible to the temptation of apparently a very crafty snake that also happened to have legs. So the story describes the snake as being more crafty than any of the other wild animals. Oh, and also it can talk. But if you consider that what the snake was doing was really putting Eve on because like God was lying to them and leaving them to manifest as these stupid things. And if the snakes had high intelligence, I would imagine you'd want to share that. So the snakes kind of uplifted Eve. And to me, the snake is kind of the champion, the hero of the story. But that's just my interpretation. Anyway, so the story goes that the talking snake comes up to Eve, like a wagwan Eve, you know. There's some nice fruit in the center. I remember tried that thing. So like, yo, Jesus Christ said it's gonna kill me. Hat attack, hat attack. Like, no, I'm telling you, you won't die. It's gonna get super smart. And he's like, what does smart mean? He's like, you eat the fruit, you'll know what smart means. It's like, I wanna, like, I wanna get on that thing, you know. So she ate the fruit, and then apparently suddenly, like, they became aware because they weren't aware before. Or maybe they were just like really dumb. It's, it's unclear. But suddenly like they know things. They're like, oh my God, we're naked. And so they like hide themselves. And then obviously God finds out because he knows everything. I guess he was like hiding behind a, a cloud to watch it happen. And he's like, I got you. 
bad humans. So apparently he says to Adam, like, why are you hiding, bro? And he's like, dude, I was scared because I was naked. And I just realized that you've been looking at my naked ass this whole time. And that's kind of creepy. So, like, we figured we'd cover up our genitalia. Then he's like, how did you know you're naked? You're not supposed to know you're naked. You're just supposed to be naked in the garden for my viewing pleasure. Who's fucking with my peep show? Did you eat the fruit? Did you eat the fruit you're not supposed to eat that makes you know that you're naked and now I don't get my peep show? And because these are weird, innocent, first human beings, they fess up and like, yeah, we ate the fruit. But of course, even if they hadn't fessed up, he would have known because he knows everything. And yeah, we've gone over that. And so then the all-loving, benevolent creator of the universe decides to dole out some good old-fashioned punishment because, you know, they messed with his peep show. And so, of course, the champion of the story, the great liberator, the snake, gets taken out first, and then he gets to the humans. So snake first. And I quote, Cast a you above all the livestock, and all the wild animal, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and ours, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And finally to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it, and all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your boy you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, and from dust you are, and from dust you shall return. And then they were like, What? And he's like, get the fuck out of my garden. <laughs> oh, and actually, I had been referring to uh, the character that we know as Eve, as Eve the whole time. But prior to this point in the story, she actually had not been named. She is, at least in my version, just referred to as the woman <laughs> before this. And then uh, it is only when they get kicked out of the garden that apparently Adam names her. Because there's a theme in this story that apparently if a, a man names a thing, he has dominion over it. And again, that because whoever wrote this story really wanted to ram down the point that he wanted uh, people to be convinced of the notion that a man should have dominion over women. Because again, in the cursing, that the great benevolent loving God doles out at the eviction from the garden, they remember to insist that man rules over who they refer to at that point as the woman. Anyway, yeah, so these guys have been kicked out. They go off into, I guess, the greater planet and they get to fucking... And they get two sons. So apparently the first child, natural born human, was one Cain. The first son of Adam and Eve. And Cain followed in the footsteps 
of his father and he too tilled the land. He was a farmer, um, living out apparently the curse of God. Then next they had another child called Abel. And by this time, I guess um, the human family had started to smarten up and they realized that they could like domesticate animals. They went through great scientific advances within the space of just two children having taken on agriculture and domesticating animals. It was amazing. Like this was the most intelligent family ever. Anyway, so Abel becomes a sheep herder. And I guess since these were the first people, these were the first people to get the idea that maybe they could bribe God to not be so much of an asshole because within living memory, they had been in a really nice place. And so they took to offering up a sacrifice. Or maybe God insisted that we wanted sacrifice because, you know, he's just that kind of guy. And the point is they were sacrificing shit to the guy. And of course, they brought what they had. And because Cain was but a farmer, and apparently they had not had that little class where you should share with your brother, <laughs> they, the two sons brought individual sacrifices. Apparently, Adam and Eve weren't really feeling that shit. They're like, nah, that guy's a creep. He used to look at my naked body. If he wants to punish me, I'm going to be punished anyway. But the kids were like, nah, man, maybe he's just hating on mommy and daddy. So let's see if we can bribe the guy. So they're trying to vibe him up. And so they bring the best which they have. And maybe there was a rivalry. And they were intentionally trying to one-up each other. But the point is that Cain came with um, a measly couple of bushels of stuff that he had grown. But because, of course, uh, Abel had a flock of sheep, uh, he brought a sheep. And that is substantially more food. Now, I guess... It's like how sometimes um, the mafia will take protection money from all the stores, even if they don't need the protection money. It's more of a principle thing. I guess that's like how it is for God and sacrifice because he doesn't need food. But in the same way that uh, the racketeer will be angry if you're short, God was not happy that Cain's bounty was not as bountiful <laughs> as Abel's and so he showed his displeasure and Cain didn't like this and then Cain had the novel idea that wait if there was just no Abel then God would have no choice but to love me because like he hates mom and dad and the only guy who is standing in the way of my affection is Abel now, why at this point, the all-knowing, all-powerful, benevolent, loving being did not intercede and maybe stop this first of a series of great tragedies from happening? Why he did not intercede, we will never know. I'm convinced it's because, as they say, it's part of the plan. This is exactly what he wanted to see. He needed to be entertained. This is a... An infinite being, apparently. I can imagine... I'm already bored. I can't imagine <laughs> billions of years. Anyway, so... Cain is mad, and he goes and he deads his brother. And I guess Cain maybe felt a bit satisfied. He's like, finally, I will have God all to myself, and no more of this fucking digging for food, bro. Back in the garden. But 
unfortunately, as they say, men make plans and the gods laugh. Because if Cain's intention was that by murdering his brother, he would suddenly be the apple of God's eye and have all of his attention, something of the opposite happened. Because after God got him to confess to the murder, he then proceeded to banish him from, I guess, the second area where they were and declared that he would be a wanderer. And then, suddenly, like, he just casually throws it out there that there's other people. So, like, apparently he goes to another city called Nod and then there, apparently, he lay with his wife and then there's a whole thing about his line. But this then forces two considerations. So if there were, in fact, only the first four and then three people, then the only woman on the planet would have been Cain's mother. And they do not give a name for Cain's wife. And so, like, maybe it was a Game of Thrones incestuous thing where they were all fucking each other and Cain started his line with his mom. Or maybe they were not, in fact, the only people because they mentioned that Cain will not be murdered by people along the way. So either God is just trying to scare him that there's other people who are going to murder him because they're the first people, or there are, in fact, other people... It's, it's just a very bad story with so many holes. Anyway, Cain is uh, subsequently banished again and the Lord declares that he will no longer interact with him. So nothing went according to plan. And he goes off and starts his family with maybe his mother or another person or like weird story. And the book then goes on to give us an approximation of subsequent generations until we get to the subject of next week's episode, Noah. Because after listing um, the lineage of Cain, the story then says that Adam lay with his wife again and had another son, Seth, which it then uses to establish the line of Adam to Noah. Perhaps because... In the next story, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, uh, God genocides the whole planet other than Noah. And I guess they had to argue that it was because of the sin which they carried with them from Cain as they were from the line of Cain. And Noah could be presented as being untainted by that apparent generational sin of being in Cain's line so that when the great benevolent all-loving God does genocide by water, he can be saved to once again continue the great epic that is playing out apparently for this immortal being's viewing pleasure. But more on genocide by water next week.